If you have a copy of God's word, please turn to Isaiah chapter 60, Isaiah 60. We're, we're getting close to the end and um, we will make it, Lord willing. But uh, Isaiah chapter 60, as we continue to look at uh, the evangelical prophet, the fifth gospel written 700 years before Jesus's birth. Without further ado, well, with some further ado, if you don't have a Bible with you, just a reminder, the sermon text is printed on the inside cover of the bulletin. You can use one of the pew Bibles if you see one of those as well. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 60. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and daughters, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come up to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and the Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar. There's silver and gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be continually open. Day and night they shall not be shut. The people, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been <clears throat> forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation and destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day. Nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. 
Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh God, our God, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, would you sustain us with the hope of all the future inheritance and blessings, the future home that you are preparing for us, your people. Be with us. Help us to hope in you. We pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen. What's your favorite time to gaze at the mountains of the Front Range? Hopefully it's not Sunday morning, though I, I get it. It's, it's a very good view, isn't it? But what time of day does the light hit the mountains just right for you? My, my wife kind of likes it when the sun is behind them and they sort of look hazy. Some like sunset, all the pinks, the oranges, that might be your thing. I, I like it when the sun melts the snow on the southern slopes and leaves the northern snow so that you, you have those stripes, if you know what I mean, but it's not my favorite. Give me sunrise in summertime, any day of the week, when the light hits it just right in the morning and illumines all the topography there. Well, you know, one author says that Jerusalem was known for her sunrises as well. He describes it like this, sun appearing over the Mount of Olives to the east, driving away the darkness, flooding the whole scene, walls and gates, domes, towers, homes with all its glory. And Isaiah is seeming to build on that, that breathtaking beauty by making it a symbol for what the grand finale will be like, <clears throat> beautiful like a sunrise. Peaceful, with no worries, no unmet needs, no more waiting. It's a beautiful picture. And if you don't like this passage or get excited by it, I frankly don't know what else to do because there's numerous pictures in this passage, but we're going <clears> to <throat> divide it into five. Five pictures of that final day when God will be glorified and we, by his grace, will be beautified. Do we deserve that? <clears throat> no, not on our own, but this is the hope we have in Christ. So our first point is this, the light has come. Light has come. You see it in the first three verses. Now the text has this word come over and over again. Sometimes it's come or bring or even gather, but it's the same Hebrew word group. For that reason, I've included that word come in all five points. But most of the time, the Word, the verbs, they're in the future tense. What will come? Not so here at the very beginning. Rise, shine, for your light has come. It's a perfect tense, a past tense, a completed action. And then in verses 19 through 22, the very end, it says the Lord, it, he will be our everlasting light. He will, will come. So what's going on? Has it come? Will it come? Well, here in the first three verses, you get what's called a prophetic past tense. It is stating in a past tense what will happen, but it will happen with absolute certainty. That's why they say it's already happened. Isaiah begins by telling you what is sure to happen. 
And then he spells out all of the smaller elements of this great hope for us. And notice the image that he uses, at least the main one. In verses 1 through 3, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has arisen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness to peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This has to be the future, right? Because very few sources would paint a picture this bright for Israel in Isaiah's day. Life then was dark. It was full of despair, spiritually dark, materially, economically, militarily. I think that's a word also dark. You might say it was despairing. It was hopeless. Must be the future. And how far in the future? Well, John in Revelation, uses these same images to paint his picture of the new Jerusalem, the final city that will come down from heaven. Light is shining upon them, it says here. God's light. It's number six. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. It's that come true. Yes, there's darkness, but not for God's people. Not anymore. His light, his goodness, his glory are resting upon his people. And the, the rest of God's people, the ones who are coming in even now, the nations, the kings, they are flocking to see God's people. Is that because God's people are, are so much better on one level? No, not on our own. We are bankrupt in righteousness. And at the same time, we've won the lottery without even buying a ticket. God has seen our ways, but he will heal us. We've seen in recent chapters, the high and holy one has come down to dwell with the meek and lowly like us, the ones who cry out, woe is me, I am undone. And before we move on to see this, this motion picture, this picture that's changing as we go, aren't both of those things true for you, at least in part? Isn't your life on your worst day, in your worst mood, darker than you want it to be. You can see despair, bad news around you more than you want. And at the same time, if you're in Christ, don't you know something of this joy, this light, this hope? Aren't you able to, to say, I, I am a child of the light, of God's light, that he has graciously bestowed upon me, and one day I will dwell in the city of light, the city that is beautiful, that's illumined by God's own glory nonstop. Isn't that true if you're in Christ? And if we remembered that every morning before we hit the snooze button, how different, how peaceful, how joyous would our lives be? And wouldn't we want that, prefer that peace and that joy? If so, <clears throat> sit back. Continue to take it in. The breathtaking pictures, the powerful poetry. Light has come, my friends. Already here in one sense. A future certainty in another sense. Light has come. What else will come? Well, secondly, we see wealth of the nation shall come. The wealth of the nation shall come. In verses 3 through 7, nations will come. It said that in verse 3 that we already read. And then Verse 4, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons and uh, your daughters 
shall be carried on the hip. Then, sh uh, then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the seas shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. Again, God's people are not intrinsically better than, than everybody else. In fact, sometimes God intentionally chooses the weak of the world to shame the strong, as 1 Corinthians 1 says. But there is something here about God's people that is downright magnetic. Isn't it the glory and beauty, the favor that he bestows upon his people? The peace that passes understanding, his grace that keeps us going despite the craziness around us, the hope that we have. And if those things aren't clear now, they, they will be one day. It says people will flock to the kingdom of God like it's a treasure in a field. Mixed metaphor alert. They will also bring all of their treasures into an infinitely better kingdom. And in one sense, that's what we see. We see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation coming into the final kingdom. But that is actually building upon another image. Do you remember Israel was headed for exile? Isaiah's talked about it repeatedly. But he also said they would come back. They would come back. And isn't that what you see in verse Four sons and daughters coming from afar. And of course, that's not all we see. It's, it's like this great and magnificent return from exile, which was promised, which when it happened was actually, actually a little bit disappointing. It's only a picture of the final return. And it seems that more than just the exiled Jews will be coming home. Look at verse 6 with me. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian, and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And then Kedar and Nebaioth are also mentioned. It's, it's geographic gymnastics, people from all over. And that's not the only thing you see. You see that good news is going to be there. And, and gold and frankincense too. Now, I'm not sure why myrrh isn't mentioned. I'm not sure why baby Jesus isn't mentioned. Maybe it's because this was written 700 years before Jesus. Maybe it's because God assumes you'll figure it out and see some of those pieces come together years later. But doesn't it remind you of one of those glorious moments when God's light shone upon Israel? When a certain star led the magi, the wise men from afar to see Jesus. And again, this Picture, it adds another layer as you go. Verse 7 says, All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Now, that's not quite the way it was for Jesus. His first house, his first place where he lay his head wasn't so beautiful. A manger in an alley, the courtyard, wherever it was, it certainly wasn't a palace wasn't beautiful. Maybe Isaiah means for our, for our eyes to look beyond the return from exile, beyond the greater exodus that is Jesus's birth, beyond all of that, so that we see a final beautiful house, a mansion with many rooms. And on one level, you might notice all the praise in this place. It belongs to King Jesus. But, but don't ignore the fact that the blessings that the king's subjects and the co-rulers will have as well. Now, read verse 5 with me again. Then you shall see 
and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. We will be bright, radiant, beaming from within. And in some way, the wealth of the nations will come to us. What is that worth? Like in dollars? I mean, I don't know. I don't know how to put a figure on that, but I'm pretty sure it's enough to pay your taxes, your student loans, pay off your mortgage, enough to catch up on retirement, buy the vacation home and more. When that day comes, you will know what David meant when he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. No once, because needs and wants will become one and they will all be supplied. You'll have all that you need. Light replacing the darkness, wealth and abundance replacing want, need, poverty, jealousy, greed. The wealth of the nations will come, it says. And then thirdly, it also says glory and beauty shall come. Glory and beauty shall come. What do you need that you don't have? What do you not have that you need? God promises here that his final city, it'll be bright, it'll be hope-filled, it'll be full of riches and honor, a gift of tribute to the king that his people will also enjoy. And a part of that hope is beauty, beautifying his beautiful house, it says in verse 7. And that theme continues, the procession into his house continues as well. In verses 8 and 9, it says, who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows. They're coming from the coastlands. They're flying like doves. It says they will bring your children as well as gifts, as well as silver and gold. And again, they're coming to worship the king. But one reason they come is, quote, verse 9, he has made you beautiful. He's made you beautiful. Good news for at least two reasons. One, the beauty mentioned here, don't you... Don't you sense, especially as you read the later verses, that it's just more permanent, more lasting. And then the second thing, it's a beauty we don't deserve. Oh, God made man upright, but we have sought out many schemes. God placed man in a beautiful garden, but we blew it. You might be saying, well, didn't Adam and Eve blow it? Yes, but does that clarification assume that you and I would have done better? Really? Would we? Isaiah keeps going. Verse 10, foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath, I struck you. But in my favor, I have had mercy on you. Again, this mercy, favor, beauty, it's all undeserved. He had every right to strike us. Yes, this is talking about Israel many years ago, but he has every right to strike us and discipline us in his wrath. But here he is blessing and beautifying his people. It talks about foreigners building up our walls. In other words, we aren't doing it. God is providing everything we need to make our house, our beautiful house, secure and strong. And someone else is doing it. And who's taking care of the more immediate needs? It says kings are doing that. Kings shall minister to you. And then verse 11, your gates shall be open continually. Day and night, they shall not be shut. The people, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. More wealth coming into this beautiful city. You know, in Revelation, the 
gates are always open. It's supposed to convey security. There's no evil to keep out. So why shut the doors here? It's a little different. The gate is open because people keep bringing gifts. Now we've already established that the city is secure, but it's secure and scintillating. You might say beautiful. That word shows up again in verse 13, as well as the word glorious. And it says all of this will be true of Zion in verse 14. Zion, the place of solid joys and lasting treasures, which none but Zion's children know. Verse 14 and 15 say, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. Are glory and beauty and security like this normal for you? Is this what life is like? Is this every single day for you? Or is there something about this that, oh my, what would that be like? Does life ever feel like a slog? Would it be different if you knew that you were headed here one day? Now, I'll confess that sometimes I look forward to vacations. Nothing wrong with that. Look forward to vacations to get through the difficult or the busy seasons of life, right? If I can just make it to the beach, it'll be okay. But you know, when that vacation comes, as good as it is, it always ends. It always ends. And now maybe you have more money than me. Maybe you take better vacations. Maybe you take more vacations, longer vacations. But eventually, your vacation will end too. Your money may run out one day. And even if it doesn't run out, your health might. Statistics say, yes, it will, unless Jesus comes back first. And when that happens, where, where will your hope be? And where will your home be? Will it be Zion, dwelling with the God who promises to make you majestic forever? And it's not just glory and beauty that God promises. Something else will come as well. Fourth point, peace shall come. Peace shall come. You see it in verses 14 to 19. Finding one word to sum up this section is a little difficult, but I think I picked a good one because how else would you describe <clears throat> Light and hope plus wealth and security plus glory and beauty. What would you call that except for peace, shalom? Now remember, shalom, peace. Shalom's the Hebrew word for peace. Shalom is not simply absence of conflict, but it's fullness of blessing. And God's people are promised both here. Look with me at verse 17. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. They'll have better blessings and better bosses. God will make our overseers peace. Our taskmasters righteousness. Their old taskmasters in Egypt, they were named stingy and cruel or something like that. You see, Israel knew what it was to be enslaved. Oh, not these Israelites, of course, but they had, they had heard the stories. See, that's the kind of thing that gets passed down, both by oral tradition as well as the emotional scars. 
the stories, the family rules. You have any of those? Scars that get passed down, whether they're spoken or not. Scars that become more like a code so that you never repeat the past. They might sound like this, never trust the government. Never trust men in your life. Money and financial security are the most important things in life. Never show weakness to anyone. Maybe they sound different, but they all have that sort of similar tone and involve the word never and always. And maybe there's some good principles hidden in those absolute rules, but I bet they also contain a story and not often a happy one. And what would it look like if all those sad things came untrue? What would it look like if the oppressors in your life were replaced with peace and shalom, fullness of blessing? What if all the demands of the law that we sometimes try to keep so that, that we can prove to ourselves and others how good we are, what if those were replaced with righteousness? What if it were an alien righteousness, as Martin Luther used to say, a gift that was from outside of us? What if violence and devastation were forgotten, as verse 18 says? What if salvation guarded us all day long? What if praise filled our mouths as a result? What if we had nonstop sun, verse 19? And I'm not talking about 300 days. I mean 24-7, 365. I know someone who read a similar phrase that there would be no night in heaven. And they got worried. They said, does that mean we can never sleep? Two responses to that. In heaven, we will have everything we need and nothing we don't. And two, of course we'll sleep. Don't you know the joy of a nap in the sun on the beach? What if the effulgent splendor of his divine presence radiated in us and upon us every day from now until forever? What if he wiped away, wiped out every tear? As verse 20 says, what if? Verse 16 says, you shall, you shall suck the milk of nations and you shall nurse at the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. First half of that verse might be a strange image. Alec Moitier says the nursing imagery, it represents, quote, the actual enjoyment of the very best of loving personal care and nourishment. Makes me think of an earlier passage in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 23. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. In other words, the rich, the famous, the powerful will serve us. Not because we're special, but because God is, his presence is. And the best image he can find to explain what that's like to us, it's so packed with hyperbole that it reads like that. Makes me think of a movie, surprise. The movie Annie, 1982 version is the one I grew up watching. I couldn't find the clip online, so let's hope that my memory is decently accurate. I remember little orphan Annie and her raggedy hair meeting rich Daddy Warbucks, who has no hair, of course. And somebody mentions going to her room, which of course is probably bigger than, bigger, nicer than any room she's ever had. And she asks if she can clean it, if that's why she needs to go to her room. Because that's what she did at the orphanage. She's been given this over-the-top, amazing blessing. And she really has no idea what to do with it. Sometimes I don't think we know what to do 
with the news of our future inheritance. Maybe it's just too big to take in. And maybe we're not focused on it properly. What I do know is that the gift we will one day receive is bigger than you can imagine. Peace is your taskmaster. Princes is your servants. Praise that just won't seem to stop. Peace shall come. And it shall come in fullness. There's one more thing to say about all these blessings. Fifthly and finally, in its time, it shall come. In its time. It shall come. Now, we've already glimpsed at some of these final four verses. Walk through them briefly. Verse 19 says there will be no sun, actually, but we'll have the everlasting light of the Lord. Verse 20 repeats that and adds that mourning, sadness, all that will end. It'll cease. Verse 21, your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. More good news. Imagine what would society be like with without all the bad apples, if everyone was righteous. Oh, how glorious that would be. And then verse 22, the least one shall become a clan and the smallest one, a mighty nation. I am the Lord in its time. I will hasten it in its time. I will hasten it here. He says, when it's time, it's going to happen. It's going to happen quickly with haste. You see, here's something else that we forget. We are not promised these blessings now on this fallen earth, on this side of heaven. We're only promised the down payment, the appetizer, the foretaste. C.S. Lewis once said, if you think of this world as a place simply intended for our happiness, you'll find it quite intolerable. Think of it as a place for training and correction. and It's not so bad in its time. In its time, and it seems pretty clear that time has not come yet, but we, we get so mixed up about this, don't we? We want our best life now. We don't want to wait, and whether we picture a middle-class version of the prosperity gospel or the full-blown one with private jets and Lamborghinis, we want what we want, and we want it now. And when we don't get it, we can very quickly turn on the God who has promised such good things to us in the first place. And our problem is not the desire for light, for hope, for wealth, for security, for beauty, for glory, for goodness. It's not that. Our problem is how soon we want it and where we seek it. It's hard to keep hope alive in a fallen world. God will fully reveal that hope in its time. He will hasten it. In the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, which is not rated PG, you've been warned. Early on, Morgan Freeman, known as Red, he scolds his friend Andy for having the gall to hope in a hopeless place like Shawshank Prison. Hope is a dangerous thing, he says. Hope can drive a man insane. Years later, it's the end of the movie, and Andy, who was wrongly imprisoned, has now escaped. And Red has finally gotten parole as soon as he had given up hope that he ever would. And Red is out, and he finds this secret note that Andy has written, telling him to come see him in Mexico. And Andy closes his note to his friend with this. Hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things. And the hope we have is even better. 
It's even better than a few ex-cons spending their final days on a beach in Mexico. The hope we have is even better. Keep hope alive, my friends, by meditating upon God's promises, by beholding them like a beautiful sunrise. Know that the hope we have in Christ, it has already come. It has already shown into our hearts and the full revelation of that hope, it will come. So hold on, keep hoping in him, because as he says, in its time, I will hasten it. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. What you do is good. Your love for us never fails. Father, we sometimes get mixed up. We forget that where we are is not our home. Father, keep our eyes focused on home so that we know the hope that we have, so that we remember that all that happens in this world, yes, it's important. It is training. It is a test. It is important. But Father, this is not our final home. This is not our final resting place. And remind us how sure and certain is the hope that we have. Do this, we pray, not because we deserve it, but because we serve a good and gracious king. And we pray in his name. Amen.